0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. All right, well last week we studied 1 Corinthians 15, that incredible chapter where Paul talks about how one day we will receive new bodies that will never die, we will live on a new world that God has created that's not broken, and that 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 day will come when death will be swallowed up in victory, never to rear its ugly head again. And if I was writing 1 Corinthians, that would be, it would be tempting to end the book on that climax there. But Paul is not done yet. Because the occasion, one of the occasions for writing this book was the Corinthians had sent him um, some messengers with a letter. They had questions for him. And Paul's not done answering their questions yet. So he's got two more questions he's going to answer tonight as he wraps up this book. And the first one of these is found in chapter 16, verse 1. He says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. He's done this a number of times in this book. He's like, now about this and about that and about this question that you asked. This was a question they had asked. They had asked about the collection for the Lord's people. What is this collection for the Lord's people? Well, NLT translation spells it out a little bit more for us. It says, the collection for God's people at Jerusalem. And if you read the New Testament, you see this as something that comes up in a number of different books that they were taking up a collection for impoverished Christians at Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church was poor. And there were a number of factors that contributed to that probably. One was the fact that the day the church began on Pentecost in 33 AD, a bunch of people, a bunch of Jews came from all over the Roman Empire for this this annual festival that they were supposed to make a pilgrimage for. And on this day, this miracle happened. This was right after Christ died and rose from the dead. Uh, 3,000 people became Christians on that day. And from what we can tell from Acts, it looks like a lot of them stuck around. They stayed in Jerusalem because this was just too awesome of a thing to leave and go back to their lives. And so some may have settled permanently there in Jerusalem as part of this this fledgling Christian church. Um, But they're going to need places to stay. They're going to need food. They don't have jobs. And so that would have put a huge burden upon these early Christians. Um, they also suffered persecution from the beginning. We know this from places like the book of Acts, but also the book of Hebrews. It says, think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful even though it meant terrible suffering. Yes, you suffered along with those who were thrown in jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. And so this persecution, you know, it wasn't that every single Christian probably got their stuff seized or thrown in jail, but quite a few of them did. And that would have just drained these of the precious few resources that they had. You can read the early pages of the book of Acts. People are selling property. They're selling anything that they have just because there's such a crisis and they were sharing money with the poor people around them. Also, A big famine hit around 46 AD that we know of. The book of Acts talks about this. We can see this from uh, Roman history as well. And um, the, uh, in Acts 11, it talks about how the believers at Antioch, they took up a collection to send to the church at Jerusalem. And so, you know, when a famine hits, you know, it hit everybody, but the poor always suffer the most when a famine hits. And that's what you had here at Jerusalem. And so these, the impoverished Christians just got even worse when this famine hit. And so it was really a a rough situation for them. And um, Paul wanted to help out the Jerusalem church. And so we see this collection he's taking come up in the book of Acts as well as several different of the letters that he wrote. Why did he want to help them out? Well, one, because God puts a very high value on helping the poor. And if you spend time with God, if you spend time reading his word, what you'll find is that you, even though maybe you never cared about the poor in your life before, and you just thought, ah, they're just lazy or whatever, Um, you will start to grow a heart for the poor. You will start to empathize, sympathize, and you will start to see a problem with the plight that they're in. You know, one of the reasons why we can have such a cold heart toward the poor is because so many of us don't really have to interact with the truly poor. Even in America, the rich and poor are pretty well segregated. Um, And, you know, honestly, the, the poorest people in the world are not even living in living on this continent. They're living in other parts of the world that are so far away we would never see them unless we saw pictures or videos. And if you think about, you know, you think about a life of luxury. You think about this, you know, woman in this luxurious cruise on her her yacht. You think about this woman with her beautiful clothing and sunglasses and suitcase (laughs) in this gorgeous house. You know, you think about those two in a room with this girl right here, working her way through the junkyard, picking up this and that, um, they probably would feel a little differently about their current situation if they were anywhere close to this girl here. Again, you think about this man and his lovely lady, his glass of champagne, his spiky hair. LAUGHTER <laughs> And then you think about this boy here, you know, who's close to death. The vultures are not even, you know, the vulture is just sitting next to him. So weak, so thin, so malnourished. Again, this boy and the, that couple, um, that couple would feel a lot differently about their situation if they were anywhere close to this. And you just see the luxury in this world, the hotels, the, pool, the swimming pools, the ocean, the beautiful scenery, the beautiful clothing, the, the, the ships, and then... You know, you think about, like, people living in conditions like this with easily treatable diseases, malnutrition, uh, diseases we cured a long time ago. And it's, it's really the separation between the two that is so painful. And the thing about God is God sees all of this at the same time. He can't, he can't turn his, his head away from this He doesn't just see the external, but he sees the feelings of the poor. He he hears their cry, their spoken cry, and the cry of their heart. God is fully present in every way with every poor, suffering person. You know, the, the, the thousands of people who just today died of malnutrition. God knows every one of their names. He sees their plight. He knows them. And this is why scripture says the righteous is concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked does not understand such concern. There's been a hardening of the heart. There's been a willful looking away and a doing nothing about the plight of the poor. And uh, the wicked's like, oh, do we got to talk about this again? Like that's something the wicked would say. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. Yeah, God, God doesn't shut his ear to the cry of the poor. He, hears every, he sees all of their tears. He sees every one of them. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but helping the poor honors him. Yeah, you know, a, poor, a person is a person. They're made in the image of God. There's something about every human being that reflects the very image and likeness of God. And to turn away and to not care that someone in the image of God is suffering in this way, to do absolutely nothing... Well, God says, um, I take that personally. That's not just oppression of the poor. That's an insult to me. You must not think too highly of me if you're willing to do something like that. You must think I don't care or know what's going on in this world. But it says helping the poor honors him. It's a way to give weight to God, to God's perspective, to the very image of God we see stamped on people. And so... Yes, Paul wanted to help out the Jerusalem church because God puts a high value on helping the poor. And so that was something that was important to him as well. These Gentiles had benefited so much from the faith that began in Jerusalem. That was another reason Paul talks about. He says, since the Gentiles received the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is to help them financially. That's the book of Romans, 1527. <clears throat> There was also racial tension between the Jewish and Gentile portions of the church. You can see that growing throughout the book of Acts. You can see the subtext or explicitly in some of his letters. And um, Paul was like, you know, if we can show up with a big chunk of money from these Gentile churches, these mostly non-Jewish churches, you show up to Jerusalem, these people are suffering. They don't know how they're going to feed their families. And you say, here, here. The believers, the brothers and sisters at Corinth send this. Oh, and the brothers and sisters at Philippi send this. Oh, and the Thessalonians send this. And the Bereans have this for you. And just to think, you know, whatever, whatever coldness there was in the, in the heart of the Jerusalem Jews, that's going to thaw when you receive that kind of love. Not just a love that says, God bless you, brother. But a love that says, I saved up money for a year. So we could send one of our best guys with all of this back to help you guys out because we love you. And so this was part of Paul's strategy for unity in the early church. But it really brings up this question. When we think about Christian giving, why would anyone give their money away voluntarily? That may be hard for us to understand, especially those of us here who are not Christians, Well, a couple of points I would make with you on this. We don't have time to go real in-depth here, but one reason is because everything ultimately belongs to God anyway. It's all his stuff anyway. So to give something to God is really not to take something of mine and give it to him necessarily as much as it is. To take something of his that he's loaned to me for a time and to give it back to him. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I mean, he's the creator of all that exists. He's the uncaused cause, And so everything rightfully belongs to him. So to give anything to God is simply giving back to God. We also realize, as a Christian, I realize God has given me so much. And I'm so grateful. What Christ did when he came to earth and he lived a life among humans that rejected him and then he died on the cross. 2 Corinthians 8 says it better than I could possibly say it. It says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes, he became poor. So that by his poverty, he could make you rich. Yes, he emptied himself, he gave up everything, humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you could have a relationship with God. And this is the good news, that God, even though God had a real problem with you because you've you've turned away from him, the whole world has, and even though that's deserving of death, He says, I love you enough that I will send my one and only son to die on the cross for you. And I offer you a relationship with me. I offer you forgiveness. I offer you guaranteed eternal destiny with me in heaven. If you'll simply receive him. You'll simply receive his gift. He wants to make you rich by his poverty. And that's his choice. And it's a choice that he's given you. So God's given me so much. I'm just like, man, man. When I was hopeless, when I didn't have two spiritual scents to rub together, God gave to me in every way. And now, I just, I feel this generosity. The love of God comes into your heart and begins to well up and you find your cup overflowing with blessings and you want to give. It turns selfish people into givers. That's what the grace of God does. And that's the effect that it was having on these different churches. There's also the fact that Jesus says, God's giving you an investment opportunity. Jesus said, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store up treasures in heaven. Where he goes on to say, moths can't eat them, rust can't destroy them, thieves thieves can't steal it. This is guaranteed. And you know, there's some of our money we're gonna have to spend simply to live life in a world that takes money, but... What we're looking for is, is there, you know, fools just spend all their money and don't invest any of it. But what God says is you can be wise and instead of spending your money, all of it, you're going to spend some of it, but some of it you're going to invest. And you're moving that over into this safe zone where it can't be touched and you know it's going to be there forever. And that's, that's the investment opportunity God is offering. Your money, the scripture says, naked we came into this world and naked we shall depart. Life but a journey between two moments of nakedness. <laughs> but what you have is an opportunity to, before you have to give it all up, when you pass away, you have an opportunity to, to take your money and your time and to move it over into eternal, guaranteed spiritual investments. And so this is why we're actually excited about doing something real with our money. So much of our money is just frittered away, and we're like, I can't even remember what I spent it on. That was so unsatisfying. And these purchases actually seem to be making me more miserable, more lusting for things. We can take some of that, and we can turn it around, and we can learn to become givers and lovers with our money, people who use our money to love other people, to have purpose and meaning in this life. And it's actually quite exciting but Paul says, you know, there are certain principles that need to be followed. And he gives a few key ones here that I think it would be wise for us to pay close attention to. He says, you know, this collection for the Lord's people. I want you to do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So these are this is instructions he's laid out to a lot of different churches that he's planted. He says, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Uh, the first day of the week probably was the day that they met for home church back then. Although in, in Acts it says day by day they were meeting from house to house and in the temple. and So they were getting together a lot more than once a week. But um, Sunday was the day Jesus rose from the dead. They, it, was a, it was a work day for them, so it wasn't Sunday morning. It was probably Sunday after work that they got together. Um, but he says, it, it almost looks like they're kind of bringing their money and kind of compiling it each week so that when Paul gets there they'll be able to... Uh, he'll be able to collect it all. And so one principle we see here is, you know, he says, it's the first day of the week. I want you to set it aside. I want you to save it up. I don't want to have to make some special collection when I get there. What we see here is a picture of giving that is intentional and proactive. This is not impulse giving. Impulse giving just won't cut it. You know, it feels sort of spiritual, you know, it it feels sort of unspiritual to be like, I'm gonna save X amount each week from each paycheck and then I'm gonna give that. Shouldn't it just be, well, as the spirit leads, that's how I'll give my money? Well, it sounds good, but that's actually a pretty foolish statement. Um, One thing you don't realize is impulse giving, you won't be able to give nearly as much as you would if you went with an intentional savings plan. Your heart might be greatly moved by a need and then you open your wallet and you're like, I got $3, uh, and you're not going to be able. You're, you're never going to become a powerful giver if you just rely on impulse giving. There, there may be some impulse giving um, out of money you've saved for other things, but your giving needs to be intentional. Um, with impulse giving, you really only give to glamorous causes based on your feelings. It's like something has to move you enough for you to really want to give which is fine if you're looking at you know, pictures of starving children on the screen and they're like, please give your money to these children. But some of the needs the church has just aren't that, um, I don't know if glamorous is the right word, but they just don't quite have the appeal that something like that would. Most of the church's needs are predictable. I mean, imagine if instead of a starving person on the screen, I put up a picture of our breaker boxes <laughs> and I'll say... Please, these breaker boxes. They should be carrying electricity, but they can't because we can't pay the electric bill. Please, please, give your money. We need money every month for this. It, just doesn't, it doesn't move you to pull out the checkbook like uh, some other causes. But this is, this is just as real of a need for what we're doing here. You know, we've got to have this if we're going to have a place that people can come and sit under the word being taught. That's just one of the things about living in the 21st century. There's certain things you need. They didn't, they didn't have to worry about the electric bill in the early church because they didn't have electric. They lived in a, a more of a temperate climate as well. And there's, there's many differences, but um, we've got expenses and a lot of them are pretty regular. They're not surprising, but they're needed just to be able to function and to be able to do what we're doing here. So impulse giving alone won't cut it. What I was taught as a very young Christian was pay God first. And you'll be surprised at how much you, you can give. I was actually taught the tithe, which is an Old Testament concept where you give 10%. And I was told, you know, whatever you get paid, first thing you do, you take 10% of that, you put it in your giving. I even had envelopes at the time. I stick sticking in my giving envelope. And then they, they were also like... Take, then take 10% and put it in savings. And then whatever's left, live off that. And that'll be kind of your limitations for your spending. And, uh, you know, I can't say I always followed the saving part, but I was actually pretty good about the giving part. And um, even as a college student, and I just was amazed at how God always seemed to bless my finances. And um, it's, um, I'd get to the end of the year and I'd be like, I gave how much? Like I couldn't believe the amount that I gave, and I know I wouldn't have been given a tenth of that if I would have just just them whenever I felt like I had some extra money or whenever I felt like there was a, a really desperate cost. So pay God first, and if, if you've never tried it, it sounds like there's no way that would work, but um, that w- this is God's way. God, God's part, I think, should come out first, and that's biblical as well. He also says each one of you should set aside a sum of money, and so the emphasis here is on each, every Christian should give. He doesn't just want a couple of super rich Christians at Corinth funding all of this. Now he says we're one body, but we're many members. And everybody makes a contribution. And some people are going to contribute more and some people less. But this should be something he's like, I would love to see everybody get in on this. And there's something about the solidarity that comes when a whole group comes together. It, what's cool, too, is... Um, when a group comes together like this, there's sort of an anonymous nature to it. Like it's different than uh, you know, some rich person giving money directly to someone, but it's saying, hey, a bunch of us chipped in to meet, that we knew about this need in your life and we wanna give this to you. And so then the person's not feeling indebted to any one person, but the person just loves the body of Christ even more and feels loved by the whole group. And the whole group gets to, gets to experience the, uh, the, the joy that comes from giving. He also says that sum of, of money should be in keeping with your income. In keeping with your income. And so a third thing we see here is that giving is going to be different for different people. You know, some people might give more. Some people might give less. You know, the tithe, like I said, was an Old Testament concept. Nowhere in the New Testament do we find the concept of the tithe. Instead, when it, how much should you give? Paul says in the next book to the Corinthians. You should, be, you should give what you decided in your heart to give not reluctantly or under compulsion. I don't want you to feel like this is some duty. I don't want to do this. No, he says God loves a cheerful giver. And so our giving is something we decide before the Lord. And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of people could do the tithe. I think maybe some people who are pretty poor, maybe a tithe would be too much, but frankly, a tithe is probably not enough for most of the people living in the United States. And, um, they would learn generosity, I think a lot of their other financial problems would also take care of themselves because they would learn self-control and they'd learn to be content with what they have and they would have actually a reason for not spending that's, that's greater than themselves is what happens. Ron Sider actually came up with the concept of a graduated tithe in his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. He argues it's, it's, uh, it's pretty hardcore, but he's... He's got a system where, you know, for every $1,000 you make over the poverty level, you know, he starts at 10% and then the the percentage increases as you go higher and higher up, which it should. Unfortunately, percentage of income given goes down as income goes up. Shouldn't it be the opposite? But no, it's, it's, as we make more money, we give a a lower percentage of that money. In other words, our giving doesn't go up as fast as our income does. And so... um, we should view, especially once you get out of college and you get that first job, you're going to have the most disposable income of your life. And uh, that can either be an opportunity for great selfishness, or it can be an opportunity to set yourself off on your career on a life of great generosity. And frankly, this, this, it, it should not, you should not wait until you have a bunch of money to start giving, because you'll never start giving, because you're never going to feel like you have a bunch of money. You need to start giving right now where you're at. And... Um, uh, Randy Alcor in his book Money, Possessions, and Eternity he, he argues pretty strongly for the tithe and I think he's off on that but I do think his point that he's like alright if you think the tithe is legalistic give 11%, give 12% <laughs> he kind of calls it training wheels he says you know when you, when you learning to ride your bike you need training wheels eventually you can take those off so he's like let's just start, it, start at the tithe and then we can take that off and we can go way up from there different perspective than we'd be thinking about things from, isn't it? But it's the perspective we're going to wish we saw it from a thousand or two thousand years from now when we're looking back on our lives. Craig Blomberg has a few things to say about this. I thought were pretty good. He says, the plain fact is that the overall standard of living of most Western Christians is so much superior to that of believers in most other eras and cultures such that our excuses for not helping the millions of Christian needy to say nothing of the other poor people in the world ring exceedingly hollow. The amount of money required annually to relieve the worst suffering of the two-thirds of the world that's desperately poor is far exceeded by the amount Americans spend each year on sports, leisure, recreation, surplus food, and clothing. Obviously, corrupt governments, civil warfare, supply blockades, and various other obstacles would still prevent the alleviation of all human misery, but far more significant progress could be made toward helping the poor than is currently being done. Governments may have more resources at their disposal, but they will not usually bring relief in the name of Christ or present the holistic antidote. There are spiritual and physical maladies here. Poverty is, is, in part, there's a spiritual problem there as well. They need the hope that Christ brings. Poverty is pretty hopeless, and you end up turning to all kinds of other things. Crime, uh, all sorts of things to numb the pain of poverty, because you're suffering, and you're hopeless, and Christ brings a hope to the hopeless. Sadly, American Christians give, on average, about 3% of their income to all charitable causes put together. But if most of us were honest, we could afford and would be able to give far more without substantial sacrifice. And then he gives kind of this rapid-fire list that I, I'm just going to read through here. Maybe it'll spark some ideas for some of us. The point is not that we never spend any money on leisure and entertainment or nice things. The problem is when there's nothing being done to help the poor. That's the problem that he's getting at here, and when we're missing the opportunity that we have. So he says, A list of ideas for simple living is almost endless. Living in smaller homes, buying less expensive cars, that's where people waste most of their money. The average home these days is three times the size of a home in the 1960s, even though families are smaller. We waste so much on cars, eating less and eating out less. That's maybe an area that even some of us here in this room that don't have much money could think about. Buying fewer clothes, utilizing garage sales, carpooling, watching videos rather than going to movies, avoiding cable TV, buying bulk or wholesale, traveling less by car when bicycling is possible, traveling less by jet when driving is possible, (laughs) Sharing rarely used household tools and equipment among families on the same block or in the same housing complex. Setting up babysitting co-ops, gardening for food, spending less money on pets. <laughs> Conserving energy in our homes and buildings. Planning more modest weddings and funerals. There's another place. Maybe save a little bit. Giving donations to Christian ministries, as birthday or Christmas presents. We're regularly giving away unused clothes, books, toys, other possessions, and on and on. You get the idea. These are a few, a few ideas that might help cut some expenses to free up some money to become a giver. And uh, the biggest problem is not that we don't have enough stuff, but we, we, we're, we're so discontent with what we have. We're so unappreciative of it. And one of the things God really wants to bring is contentment. He wants to teach us the secret of being content in whatever circumstances we are. Paul says, then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. So we see a fourth and final principle here governing financial giving, which is that giving requires financial accountability. And unfortunately, so many churches ignore this and have brought disrepute on the name of Christ. Paul talks about this. So what they would do is they would would collect the money and and they're not just going to give it to Paul and he's going to leave town with it. Um, He says, no, I want you to pick... One of the, I'm to pick, I want you to pick the most reliable guy you got, most trustworthy guy, so that every one of you have a personal eyewitness for what's happening with this money. And I want you to, him, to, him to make the sacrifice of leaving his business and his family, which you guys are probably going to have to chip in to cover that as well, so that he can come with me and the other guys on the long journey back to Jerusalem. One, for accountability, also for safety, because um, the more dudes you had traveling with you, the harder it was to get robbed. And um, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 8. He says, we're traveling together to guard against criticism for the way we're handling this generous gift. We're careful to be honorable before the Lord, but we also want everyone else to see we're honorable. And so we've got to handle it, not just before God, that's very important, but we've got to go out of our way to make sure that everyone can see that we're handling this with integrity. In Acts 20, it says several men were traveling with Paul carrying this gift. It names a few of them here. Sopater and Pyrrhus from Berea. That was a city east of, Thess- of Thessalonica, central Greece. Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, a city right there on the coast uh, in Greece. Gaius from Derby, which is way over there in Turkey. Timothy from nowhere. just kind of was Paul's dude. <laughs> Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia, most certainly Ephesus and the surrounding area. This was the crew that was part of the posse that he rounded up to bring the money back to Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, this accountability, it costs a little bit. It costs these guys the time and the money, but it's totally worth it because we want to be honorable in the sight of people, not just in the sight of God. Forbes magazine Article from a couple of years ago: Fraud is thriving in U.S. churches, but you wouldn't know it. One of the problems is that because of the separation of church and state, even though, like every other nonprofit in the U.S., has to give a detailed financial report to the IRS, churches are completely exempt from it. And so, what it's done is it's made church a safe haven for all kinds of criminals and con artists that want a place where they can scheme and take people's money. And so Forbes magazine writes, Gordon Conwell Seminary in Hamilton, Massachusetts, has conducted research on all aspects of finance related to Christian churches around the world through its Center for the Study of Global Christianity. The director of the center, Todd Johnson, said, there's a lack of research on fraud within the church. That's something he's been trying to change. Johnson teamed with David Barrett to write a book called World Christian Trends. Barrett, who passed away in 2011, was a pioneer in collecting data on churches and noticed a significant increase in embezzlement in churches, embezzlement fraud during the 1980s. In one of Johnson's recent studies, Status of Global Mission 2013, there's a line item for ecclesiastical crime to the tune of, $37 $37 billion worldwide, nearly 6% of the $594 billion given to churches worldwide. Losses due to mismanagement of funds is also a line item totaling $8 billion. That's $45 billion in losses and crime within churches. And he says, in contrast, the total spent on missions work is $32 billion. So 50% more than spent on missions is is stolen or just simply mismanaged through sloppy accounting practices. Much of the fraud goes unreported, Johnson said. Barrett worked with accounting fraud experts on his initial study who had estimated that as much as 95% of fraud within churches goes undetected or unreported. But why not report it? Johnson told me, as part of it is a reluctance to see the bad side of a nice pastor, a secretary, or a board member of the church who's stealing. (laughs) Johnson even cited one quote from a church member who knew of an embezzlement and said, quote, I know he stole my money, but I still think he's a wonderful person. (laughs) Awesome. And so the picture the world gets is that the televangelist on TV begging for more and more money while he drives around luxury cars, lives in multi-million dollar home, you know, only to have yet another scam busted open by 60 minutes. And this is the picture we're presenting of Christianity. All because we won't follow practices laid out right here in scripture. What we've done as a church is several things. We have an open book policy where anybody can go up to our office and sit down and take a look through how we're spending our money in as much detail as you can stand. Two signatures required for any check over 50 bucks. Regular audits by outside organizations that come in and take a look over all our books and make sure everything adds up. Annual church ride reporting and voting. We take a whole weekend in January. We lay out everything we did with the money last year and how, how it succeeded or failed. We say, here's what we'd like to spend money on next year. And then we put it out to a vote where you guys have to prioritize which thing we should do and which thing we should wait till next year. And so you're having very real hand in deciding the the priorities and direction of the spending in this church. I don't know why churches don't open their books up, but a lot of them don't. And I think it just, it looks suspicious. What harm is there in opening your books? If everything's cool, then everything's going to be cool. And if everything's not, then uh, maybe that's why you you don't want to open it up. So anyway, that was their first question. What about this collection? The other question was something about Apollos. He says in verse 12, now about Apollos, it's the same formula he's been using to answer their other questions. Apollos was a leader who had a big impact here at Corinth. He came there after Paul and Timothy and others had been there to plant this church. There was also divisions within Corinth. Some were like, "Well, I follow Apollos," and others were like, "Well, I follow Paul." And um I think they were like, so when's Apollos coming back? He was awesome. He was such a good speaker. But Paul don't speak too good. (laughs) And so Paul's going to answer their question. But what he's really going to say is he's just going to tell them about all the different leaders that had an impact there and their plans as far as he knows about it. He's going to start with himself, which the discussion about the collection flows right into Paul's plan. So we'll just read the rest of this letter together. Paul says, after I go through Macedonia, that's northern Greece, I'll come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. At this point, he's on the west coast of Turkey in Ephesus. He's right in the middle of Acts 19. There's this huge revival breaking out in Ephesus. Tons of people are coming to Christ. There's tons of opposition. And he's right there. He spends three years in Ephesus. That's where he writes 1 Corinthians from. But he says, I'm going to make my way up the coast of Turkey, right over into Greece, and then down the other side of the Aegean And he says, perhaps I'll stay with you for a while or even spend the winter. You couldn't really travel in winter. And Paul's hoping to get there, to stay with them. So you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. You can see the tentativeness here. Perhaps, I hope, if the Lord permits... But I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work is open to me, and there are many who oppose me. And so what's he talking about here, this great door that's opened up? Well, you remember how Paul earlier in the book compared serving God to farming? And you know, with farming, you're going around, you're planting seeds, you're watering, you're weeding, you're making sure everything's right, and sometimes you're farming away and nothing seems to grow. Or sometimes, you know, here a Christian work is like a door and he's like banging on the door and the door just won't open. He can't get through. But sometimes you do the same thing as before and all of a sudden stuff starts springing out of the ground. All of a sudden you've got more harvest than you know what to do with on rare occasions. All of a sudden the door swings wide open and you're like, you can just walk right through it with no opposition. It almost seems too easy, but what you see is times of great blessing. In ministry, that happens sometimes, and Paul's like, I'm in the middle of one of these right now, and he knows what it's like to bang his head against the door. He knows what it's like not to make it through, and he's like, I made it through. To use a football analogy, since tonight is the start of the football season, you know, it's like, sometimes ministry's like this. You're like, I'm going to, oh, no, man, what, oh, <laughs> let's try it over here. Oh, Okay, let's try it again. Uh, no, it didn't work that time either. they are like, well, let's, let's run a different play. Let's, let's run this one here. Oh, no, it's, 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 that's not going to work. How about this, guys? Oh, Lord, why, God, why? <laughs> I'm serving you so faithfully, Lord, and I can't make it through. And then something like this happens where you're running, and all of a sudden the door opens up, and you're like, oh, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> I'm sorry, Corinth, I can't come see you. I have to keep running as long as I can run. Oh, it's still open. I can't believe it. A wide door. So Paul's like, I got to stay and see this through. This is too valuable to just give this up. I like how he's got these tentative plans He's not like, I don't know where the spirit will lead. He's like, no, I'm thinking this, and then I'm thinking that. I hope, and maybe I'll even get to stay with you guys for a while, but he's open to God leading him a different direction. And what we'll see when we study 2 Corinthians is that his plans do change, and his opponents were like, see, Paul, he's a liar. He doesn't mean what he says. He's wishy-washy like the people of this world. He doesn't care about you guys. You can see the tentativeness to his plans here. And um, I think that this is, this is, I like this path because it's not this super spiritual, who knows where I'm going to go. And, you know, he's taking into account, you know, the fruit that's being born, the needs that are there at different places, his own resources, and he's making a plan and he's also being open to God's leading. Really, he's trying to make the most of the time and opportunities God has given him. It's sort of like the stuff about money earlier in this chapter. God has given us a certain amount of time and opportunities, and we are supposed to Try to make the most of that under the guidance and by the grace of God. He says, you know, Timothy's also coming your way, also an impactful leader in this church, one of the church planters. He did not send Timothy with this letter. I mean, 1 Corinthians was a letter that was carried to Corinth. Timothy doesn't look like he was one of the guys who carried it. He sent him to Corinth, but through a different route. And he says, when Timothy comes, please see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. Look, he's... He's carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. You know how Timothy is. Could you you not scare Timothy this time, guys? (laughs) Kind of a timid guy, an encouragement to us all, Timothy is. He says, no one should treat Timothy with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now, about our brother Apollos, another influential leader in Corinth, I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. When they showed up, I think they expected Apollos, but Apollos wasn't there. And they're like, Paul is keeping Apollos from us. He knows he's a better speaker. And Paul's like, look, I, I pleaded. I I was like, you got to go, man. But Apollos said, no. (laughs) How about when he has the opportunity? I do wonder if, if Apollos also was kind of hanging back. He wanted to let this letter land, them kind of process. It's, it's a pretty strong letter, First Corinthians, and then maybe go later when some of the factionizing has died down. But he says, even though Paul, Timothy, and Apollos, they're not going to be here right away. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. You know, leaders can help you, help you do these things. But even without these strong leaders, he's like, you guys need to step up and lead here. You guys need to step up and take spiritual leadership in this church. And he says, verse 14, do everything in love. Which if you had to pick a verse that summarizes all of 1 Corinthians, it'd be hard to do better than that. This selfish church, this, this letter that has the greatest chapter on love in the history of, the, of language, he says, everything that you do. Don't do it for how am I going to look and what am I going to get out of this and the wisdom of the world. He says, let all that you do be done in love. Doing everything in your power for the good of another. And he says, even though Paul, Timothy, and Apollos aren't coming, you've got some pretty good leaders there and you need to listen to them, including Stephanus, who apparently was one of the guys carrying the letter back. He said, Stephanus, I'm going to build him up right now. He was, his household was the first converts in that whole region of Greece. First people I led to Christ, one of the few that was baptized by Paul. They've devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. Yeah, so he's urging them to listen to their leaders. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus arrived because they've supplied what was lacking from you. Apparently they brought some money for Paul too. For they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. Yeah, you know, um, people are like, God should just lead us by His spirit. We don't need human leaders. Yeah, that's that's spoken by a person that hasn't read their Bible. God always works through human leaders. He points. Paul points human leaders. Even in the Old Testament, God's working through human leaders, and He raises up leaders and He says, "Look, you know, we need direction here." There's probably a lot of different ways, a lot of directions we can go. We need leadership here, godly leaders, who can help set the course. And we should be inclined to follow these leaders. You know, you could have the strongest team of dogs in the world, but if they pull in the sled four different directions, they're not going to get anywhere. Leadership helps us give direction. And we should, we, should, we should give our leaders some grace. And we should try to, um, try to be inclined to go along with the direction they want to go. It's not that we have to mindlessly follow. If we've got objections, let's bring them up in good ways, too. The churches in the province of Asia send your greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets in their house. Aquila and Priscilla, we talked about them in our opening chapter of this book. They were the couple who, when Paul came to Corinth in the first place, they gave Paul a place to stay. They were powerful leaders in Corinth. They moved to Ephesus. They, were pow- they had a powerful impact in Apollos' life. They're leading a house church in Ephesus now after leading one in Corinth. And I love this couple because they're the only couple mentioned by name in the New Testament. They're always mentioned together six times in four different books. And uh, every other time they're mentioned, it's either Priscilla and Aquila or Aquila and Priscilla. And so they both appeared to be super powerful leaders. And it was team leadership here from this married couple. And, uh, you know, that would be a, great, that'd be a great goal for those of us who are married or want to be married, to have a marriage where we're serving God together in a powerful way and where we're stronger together than separate. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> um, that, that would be weird in America. But really, in, in, in a, lot, a lot of parts of the world, they still do this. The kind of the, the cheek kiss or whatever. Um, the point is, showing our affection for each other um, it's not just having affection, but showing it. You know, some some people, it's like the hug or the the, the side hug or whatever, <laughs> or you know, kind of the hand on the shoulder, whatever it is. You know, the handshake, the uh, the bro hug. There's there's different things we can do here, and uh, we don't want to get weird with this or inappropriate. Not an unholy kiss, okay? <laughs> Big difference. Between a holy kiss and an unholy kiss. <laughs> but the principle here is showing, showing the warmth and affection. This should be a warm place where we're really happy to see each other. And then he takes the pen. After dictating this through, through a, a, someone else who wrote this book, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. In Galatians, he adds, look at what large letters I'm using. <laughs> <laughs> he was old. He, he, may have had, he had some kind of eye problem, maybe. And he, Even if he didn't, I mean, when you get old, you just... I mean, we have reading glasses, right, and contacts. They didn't have that back then. And so um, he, he... But, you know, this is sort of a way to tell forage, fake letters from real ones, which there were fake letters from Paul going around. And so he's like, you'll know this is me... Um, He would put like a little smiley face above his you and Paul as well. We 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 see this in the original manuscripts. (laughs) Um, If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. (laughs) If somebody doesn't love the Lord, they can go to hell. (laughs) Well, Paul, tell us what you really think. (laughs) And then he says, Maranatha, which is Aramaic, which means come Lord. Yes, come Lord. What a good prayer. That's the eternal perspective prayer. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus, amen. He says, I know I've said some hard things, but I love you guys. And the reason I'm saying this is because I love you. And he begins and ends the letter with grace. And we finished 1 Corinthians. Wow, 16 (laughs) chapters. Any conclusions from this last chapter? Well, one thing that sticks out to me is that God is giving you an opportunity to live life for something greater than yourself. This might be the source of the problem, a lot of the problems in your life. You have no meaning, no purpose. Living for self is, gets old real quick and leads you into all kinds of problems. Relationally, emotionally, financially, God wants you to live for something bigger than you. And you, will have, you have no idea how much that will reorient the course of your life. You can invest some of your time and your money in eternal treasures. Talk about meaningful. A life that either amounts to nothing or a life that amounts to something that lasts for eternity. Making a real difference in the lives of other people. It's impossible to describe how awesome this is. You've just got to try it for yourself. You can become a loving person, the kind of person... Of which can be said, whatever you do, let everything be done in love. And that brings us to the end of our book and the end of our study. All right, well, let's um, spend a little bit of time in prayer. Yeah, Lord, you're a giver. You've given us so much. And you want to teach us to be like you. You want to teach us that backward wisdom, God. Thank you for putting us in a fellowship that takes financial um, generosity and also financial accountability really seriously. Thank you for the millions of dollars that we're able to combine to give, to work with the, uh, with the poor, both here and overseas every year, Lord. I thank you for how you've rescued me um, from going much further down the road of materialism, Lord, and I pray that you would continue to melt my heart with your generosity And teach me to uh, love people and to love you, Lord, and to use the resources you've given me for eternity. Amen. This study was recorded at Zenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.